Now, if you've been a part of our church for some time, you will remember that our church has actually been through uh, the book of First Peter, and we preached through this uh, years ago, years and years ago. Now, I was not able to go back and reference some of the older sermons that we had, but what you hear will not be new to probably most of you, okay, and there's uh, a lot that you'll hear that you'll recognize, uh, but I do think that it is very timely, right? It is very timely for us to remember these exhortations, these truths uh, that are really pressing and um, helpful for our church. So, um, also, too, if you hear any of Josh's influence on this, this should just be no surprise to you whatsoever. So, this is just the fruit of his labor, too, um, as he's loved you and as we continue to seek to love you. So, turn with me, First Peter. We are going to cover verses 3 to 9, Lord willing, this morning. But as we prepare our hearts to be there, let me just give you some context, since it's our first time here in some time. First Peter is writing, so First Peter, uh, Apostle Peter, is writing to the elect exiles that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And one of the things that this letter addresses is the truth that the Christian life is hard. Christian life is really hard. Right? We'll see there's various trials that a Christian experiences. And so Peter gives voice to that reality, and that makes sense too, especially as you think about who he's writing to. Right? These are people that are away from their homeland, who are, perse- who are facing persecution, facing trials. And so one of the themes of the book of First Peter is the truth that we have a great inheritance awaiting us as Christians. We have great glory to look forward to. And yet that glory comes through trials. Okay? Trials must come first. Trials come first, and then glory. Trials bring glory, and we will see that some this morning. But my hope, too, is also that this passage will continue to reinforce some of the things that we have covered in Galatians so far, and that it will prepare you for the next section uh, in Galatians chapter 5. So big picture, where are we going this morning? Three main points that I hope to cover. Number one, God is sovereign over life and death. God is sovereign over life and death. Then we'll see that your trials are necessary. And third, we'll see that the Spirit changes your affections. So let's read verses 1 through 9. We'll pray, and we will dig into God's Word together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being, revealed, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials. So to detest the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the living hope that we have through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the encouragement that we have in your word to continue to remain steadfast in their trials. Thank you that you are Lord over life and death and that you are at work in each of our hearts, Lord. Father, would you accomplish your purposes this morning in each of our hearts? Would you bring truth to life that is timely, that is helpful for our season, and that would spur us on towards greater love and joy in you? So we just ask, Lord, that you would do this work because you, have, you are the one that has to do it, Lord. If man cannot change man's heart, Lord, so I, I ask for your wisdom and your help as they bring your word this morning that you would glorify yourself. So, Father, be with our church. Be with those who are sick. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read 3 to 5 again, verses 3 and 5, 3, 4, 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, you hear this, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed for the last time, in the last time. So first point is that God is sovereign over life and death. Now we see this right there in our passage. It is God, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. It is He that does this. It is not you who accomplishes this in yourself. God is the one who brings spiritual life. And how does he do it? He brings it about by ordaining the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So we have this duality here already, right? Life and death. Life and death are both in God's hands. And it's fitting for us to consider this because our church, as you know, has had to grieve a number of deaths recently. We've had to think about life and death together. Just in the last two weeks, right, we've had a number of funerals, a few deaths. We've had deaths that we saw coming, and we saw death that we didn't really see coming. And at the same time, right, we had two precious babies born in the last few weeks. So we can rejoice in the life that God has given too. So we have the opportunity to rejoice with those who rejoice 
and then turn around and mourn with those who mourn. And this is how it should be in God's church, because this is how God has ordained life to work. He gives you life, and then you die. So we see that both life in life and death, God is in control of it all. So we see this, right? He's the one who gives spiritual life. It is he, verse 3, he has caused us, okay? Notice the agent. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. Your spiritual life depends on God's mercy. Again, as we've seen in Galatians, this is a work that you cannot do, right? Your works can earn you your salvation, it is faith that matters. Faith, a gift that God has given you. So God is sovereign over spiritual life. But if you think more generally too, you also see in all of Scripture that God is sovereign over all of life and death. We know that God is the giver of life. Right? God is the one who gave Judah life. God is the one who gave Charlie Justine life. God is the one who ordains when a child lives and when a child dies. God is the one who formed each and every one of you in your mother's womb. So apart from God, there would be no life. That is why God's word, Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. But also we know that God is sovereign over death. Loved one, you should recognize your days are determined. God has appointed a limit to your days and that limit cannot pass. So whether you're a child or a teenager or an adult or an old man, your time will come. And you must consider death. Have you considered death? Have you considered the implications of the fact that you will one day die? Right, some of you feel that death is closer. And some of you don't realize just how close you are to death. But the truth is that we will all die. You will not live on this earth forever. So you have to be ready for death when the Lord ordains it to come. And when that time comes for, for you, when that time comes and the Lord is calling you home, remember, you are still in his hands. Death is not a surprise to our Savior. Ecclesiastes 7, 1-2 says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death, better. And the day of death, I wrote this wrong. 
and the day of death better is better than precious on in the day of death than the day of birth. Thank you. I got it right. Sorry, can't read. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Don't ignore death. Now, why is it better to go to the house of mourning? Right? Wouldn't it just be better to just ignore the fact that it's coming and just live as if nothing matters? Especially if you're kind of like me and everything just has a good way, have a good way of turning everything, the optimistic, positive side. There's no need to be sad, right? There's always something to rejoice about. Why would you want to go to the house of mourning? Well, death has a way of reminding us what truly matters, right? Death helps us take stock of what we're living for. Death has a way to give us perspective. And so, church, would you take it to heart? As you think about your life, as you think about the life of your loved ones, would you take death to heart? And for you who are young, this is really important for you if you're young, because it seems like death is so far away from you, right? You have your whole life to live. It may seem like death is far, but it will come to you. Death will come to you too. And you do not know how many days you have. Now, the world is terrified of death, right? Just terrified of the prospect of dying. And rightly so, right? To the wicked, those who trust in themselves, death is the end of their enjoyment. Death is the beginning of terrible and great wrath, of unending suffering. But for a Christian, do we need to fear death? We fear death no more. Why? Because we stand on the power of the one who overcame death for us. Death could not hold our Savior. The grave could not hold him, and neither will it hold you. Neither has it held your loved one who has died in the Lord. And so you remember that death is not the beginning of wrath for those who are in Christ. No, it's the beginning of life with your Savior. And this is why Paul can say in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay, that is so backwards from what the world thinks. The world is terrified of death and dying. And the Christian, Christian can confidently say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul can say that because his desire was to be with his Savior. That is far, far better. For the wicked, death is a terrible end. But for the Christian, death is not the end. It is your gain. Now what gain is there in death? Let's read verses 4 and 5. This is what God has called you to, your living hope, to an inheritance that is 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Your gain is Christ, as we sang this morning. Your gain is the inheritance that God is keeping for you. You gain Christ and all of his benefits. And your passage says here that there's this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Okay, not for just all who believe. There's an inheritance that is being reserved for you. There's a treasure chest in God's kingdom with your name on it. With the inheritance and the joys that you will enjoy for all of eternity. For you, specifically and personally, God is reserving a place. God is working even as you are dying. Every day you are getting closer to death. God is working to prepare a place for you. Right, that's why we can grieve with hope because those who have died with faith have taken hold of this inheritance. God has saved it for them and it is now theirs. And nothing can take it away. Right? They, they're no longer burdened by sin. By their own sin or by the sins of others. They no longer have to wonder what is to come. Their sin no longer keeps them from seeing Jesus face to face. They can see Jesus with their own eyes and they rejoice with exceeding joy because of their great gain. And the psalmist can say that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So yes, when death comes, we grieve. You grieve with your loved ones. You grieve with your family. You grieve with your church family. It is a sad thing. It is an enemy. But again, for the death of the saints, you grieve with hope. Because death cannot change your standing with God. And so you can today actually be confident that you will receive the reward that God has for you. You can walk confidently that that will come to his people. And how can you be sure? Our passage says that God himself is guarding it for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is guarding you by his power. And can anything or anyone oppose God? No, this salvation is ready and waiting for you when he calls you home. So, Lord, the Lord is sovereign over life and death. You will live and you will die. And so if that's true, let me ask you, what are you living for? God has assigned you a day to be born and a day to die. In between, what are you working towards? What are you putting your hope in? What are you striving after? Are you living for day? 
Are you living for eternity? Right? Hear the difference? Are you living for that which will perish? Or are you living for the imperishable? Are you living for that which is defiled? For that which is undefiled? Are you living for the unfading? For that which will never fade away? Church, don't live for things that will pass. The world and all its pleasures, they come and go. They're here one day and they're gone the next. The world's pleasures are too lowly for a Christian. So don't live for riches. Don't live to fill your storehouses with grain. Because your riches will come and go. And someone else will enjoy them. Church, don't live for a good name. Do not live solely to gain a good reputation in the eyes of the world. A few generations will pass and your name will be forgotten. Don't live to preserve your body. Your body is a gift from the Lord but it will decay and it will break down. As you get older, you recognize that more and more. It's like every time I go rock climbing with Griffin and with Meredith, I'm like, feel my body breaking down every time. Feel the age coming. (laughs) So don't live for comforts or pleasures in this life which will never leave you satisfied. Live for that which is to come, the inheritance. And this inheritance is worthy of great rejoicing. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. This, referring to the inheritance that God is saving for us, this salvation that is to come, that God is guarding for you. You should rejoice in the fact that it is coming for you. You should rejoice that it cannot be taken away from you. You can rejoice. And as you do that, you can live knowing that you will die. And you can live and press on in this wretched life, right? Again, why would you want to settle for what this life can offer when it is so full of trials, when it is so hard, when it is full of pain and suffering? Is this really all that a Christian can gain? No, this life is not worth setting your hope on. This life is full of trials and difficulties. And that's our second point. We're going to talk about your trials. And the second point that I want you to see is that your trials are necessary. Your trials, whatever they may be this morning, are necessary, is what God's Word tells us. And so just as God is sovereign over life and death, God is sovereign over your trial this morning. Verse 6. In this you rejoice. Okay, and you can still rejoice. Though now, and here are the two ways that God's Word describes your trials, all right? For a little while, and if necessary. Those are the two descriptions of the trials that you will face. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
Right? Peter acknowledges that trials will come, and they will be of all kinds. Your trials will not be like the trials of the person sitting next to you. They vary. And so what I want you to see and notice is that phrasing there. If necessary. Though trials will come, they will only come to you and to God's people if they are necessary. And that is such a comfort. That should be such a comfort to you. Okay, this has great implications, but I want to touch base on two implications of this. One, this means that God will not waste your trials. God will not waste whatever trial you're going through this morning. Because if you are in the middle of it, you can be confident that it is necessary. Your trials are not for nothing. God is not a capricious God who just wants you to suffer for no reason. No, your trials are ordained by God for a greater purpose. And we'll see that greater purpose here in just a moment. But it should be of great comfort and strength to you that you are not suffering for no reason. If you are facing a trial at the hands of God, God has deemed it necessary for you. And if it's necessary, that means that God is working through it and he is accomplishing something through your trial. So church, God will not waste your trial. And secondly, God will not allow your trial to go on any further than necessary. Your trial will not last for all eternity. Your trials, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Right? One of the most pressing questions when you're in the middle of trial and you don't understand what God is doing and you don't see an end in sight is, How long, O oh Lord? How long will this last? How long will you let my suffering continue? Will this trial ever, will this trial ever end? Right? Well, I wish I could tell you when that day would be for you. What we do know is that God will not let your suffering go on for longer than it is necessary. God is using your trials for a necessary purpose. And so if you're still in a trial, God is working in your heart for the salvation of your soul. If you're in a trial, that actually means that God has not forgotten about you. All right, sometimes we think when we're in trials, God has forsaken me. But as a Christian, you can be confident that if you are in the middle of a trial, God is actually working in your heart. This is evidence that God is working in you because he is accomplishing something through you. He believes it to be necessary for your growth. Now, what is God accomplishing in those trials? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is God doing? He is refining your faith. In your trial, the fires of trial are refining your faith. 
He is making you more precious in His sight. He is setting the stage for Christ to be glorified, for Christ to be honored before all when He appears. In verse 9, He's obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this illustration, the illustration Peter uses here is gold refined by fire. I don't know how much you know about gold being refined by fire. Maybe some of you have some knowledge, but I was learning about that this week. Um, thank God for YouTube, right? You can just learn everything you want to know. But if you want to obtain something close to pure gold, right, and you're working with something like old jewelry, and you're taking this old jewelry, and you say, I want a, a bar of gold for myself just to show off to my friends, and I want it to be really close to pure gold. Well, that material has to go through a very, very strenuous process. Okay, a couple things you have to do, right? You take the old jewelry. First, you have to melt it. And you melt it. You put it in this crucible, think place where you melt metals, and you heat it up to temperatures, I think it's what, 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit? That's pretty hot. So you put the jewelry, you melt it to try to remove the impurities, right? You're trying to separate what's gold and what's not gold, all the other minerals and metals that may be present. You try to remove the impurities, and then what you have is golden flakes, right? It looks like cornflakes, but golden cornflakes almost. And then from there, you melt that again, okay? You throw it in the flames of fire again. And then it turns into a liquid, and from a liquid it turns into a sand. You add a bunch of chemicals throughout the process that just continues to take away all the impurities out of it, precipitate the other metals so that it's taking away until eventually you can melt that sand again into a mold and it turns into a gold bar. And Peter likens your trials to refining gold. If your trials are necessary, what are they necessary for? They're making your faith pure. Just like gold is removing all of those impurities, God is preparing you for himself. He is removing the impurities in your heart. He is shedding your heart for the world and the things of the world and causing you to love him and trust in him that your faith will prove to be pure and pleasing in his sight. Again, going back to Psalm 116, 15. Actually, this is the first time I tell you that passage, don't I? But it reads, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Okay, Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. How so? How can your death be precious to the Lord? Well, it's because he has allowed trials to come to you and to prepare you, and to make you precious in his sight. God is creating a pure and holy people for himself. God is creating a people that he delights to be with. And it is through trials that God is preparing you for heaven so that you can also say that death is gain. Another thing that's interesting about the illustration too 
is that when you, if you're mining gold, if you're mining gold, you don't just stumble upon like a perfect piece of gold just on the floor. Like it's like a rock that looks just like I would just throw it away. It's like something that my kid picked up that I'd be like, you know, put that back on the ground. You don't, it doesn't look that impressive when you first get it. But as it goes through the process of being refined, it completely gets transformed, right? It goes from a dirty rock and then goes unrecognizable to the pure piece of gold that you can behold with your hand. And this is what trials do. So I want you to think, for you, think of yourself 10, 20 years ago and where you were in your life. And then think about how different were you and think, praise God that God did not leave me as I was 10 or 20 years ago, right? And this life is hard. All of you have gone through hard times in the last 10, 20 years. And God has used the fires of trial to transform you more into Jesus Christ. And so you are more like your Savior today, and you can give thanksgiving to God for all the things that he has brought in your life because they have grown you and have grown your love and your faith for himself. God is accomplishing something through your trials. God is making you more precious in his sight. Here's a warning, though, to those who have not believed. To those who maybe are not facing, if you're not facing your trials with faith. This living hope, this comfort that God is working and God will not waste your trial and your trials are only necessary for as long as they're accomplishing that purpose in your heart, that comfort is not for you. If you do not have faith in Christ alone, you cannot have the same confidence that a Christian can have. If you have not trusted in Christ, then there is no hope for you at the end of the day. There's nothing for you to look forward to. If you're not in Christ, your trials do not have a lasting purpose. In fact, the trials on this life will pale in comparison to the suffering that you will experience, the judgment that you deserve. And this is important for you. You have to take hold of your life and you have to take hold of the life of those around you, your loved ones, your family ones. When trials come, what hope do they have? And share with them the hope that you have, that living hope the strength that can become for those who are in Christ, that you are not shaken, though the world may crumble. And help others who are not in Christ see the hope and the comfort that it is to be a Christian in the midst of trials. Because as a Christian, you can endure no matter how hard a trial may be. Right? Though the fire may seem really hot and overwhelming, your Savior will not allow you to suffer any more than you need to. You can endure with patience. You can endure with purpose. 
And lastly, so we've seen, God is sovereign over life and death, and your trials are necessary. And lastly, as we prepare for the next section in Galatians, I just want you to see really quick that the Spirit changes your affections. Okay, and what do I mean by affections? I mean, when the Bible talks about your heart, your will, your emotions, all of the things that encompass you, the Spirit changes that and prepares you through trials to make you more like himself. So read that with me in verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what? And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So though you have not seen him, you can love him. Though you have not seen him now, you can rejoice with exceeding joy. That is what the Spirit does in the life of a Christian. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is what the Spirit brings about in the life of a Christian. And what makes things, these things possible? Only faith in God. Right? What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Though you do not see God, though you have still not beheld Him with your hands, you have not touched the crucified hands of your Savior, you can still love Him because, your Savior, your, because this, His Spirit is at work in your heart. God's Holy Spirit is working in your heart to love Christ. And though you do not now see him, with faith you can rejoice in him. This all depends on faith. This means that godly affections are not dependent on your circumstances. The affections that Christ brings about do not depend on what your eyes can see or what your mind can imagine. Godly affections can come regardless of what it is that we see or we don't see because they're grounded in God's work, and that is unchanging. And I want you to realize this. Whether you like it or not, your emotions actually drive you to action. Right? Have you thought about that before? Even for you men, your emotions drive you to action. You do have feelings. You have a bad day at work, right? It's a long day. Kids have been mean or adults have been mean to you. You don't get the recognition that you deserve. You're tired. You're grumpy. Guess what? People can see that in your face. Those emotions will drive you to be short with people, and you're just not always at the light to be with. Your emotions guide your actions, right? That's one example. But then on the other hand, think of a couple that just fell in love, right? The young love. And what does their love cause them to do for each other? Right? You can do crazy things when you're in love. Yeah, you write songs to each other. You go out of your way to see them between classes. Love can do that. 
Now, you shouldn't always be led and driven by your emotions, right? Your emotions can deceive you, but they are powerful drivers for your actions. And God knows that. God actually knows that. And do you know why God made you to experience emotions? Okay, your emotions are sometimes so confusing, right? Especially if you're young, it's like, why do I feel this way when I don't want to feel this way? Why has God given you emotions? Wouldn't it have been a lot easier if you could just be like, A and B equals C, great, follow, without any, your heart getting in the way? Why did God allow you to experience emotions? Well, one, because he made you in his image. God himself experiences emotions. How? Okay, I don't know. God is not like us, so none of us can actually claim to know exactly how this works out. He is not like us. But as you read in Scripture, you recognize God is an emotive God. And so God is not unfeeling towards you, Christian. Did you hear that? God is not unfeeling towards you. He's not just cold and far. He's warm. He's near. He loves you. In Christ, he rejoices with what's good and right. He longs to be with his people. All these things are part of God's heart. So you've experienced emotions because God experiences emotions. But he also gave you those emotions so you can actually draw closer to him. God has given you love, ability to love, so that you can love him. God has given you the ability to rejoice so you can rejoice in him. God has given you all of these things so that you would long to be with him more and more. And that as you love him more, you will want to follow him wherever he takes you. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That should be the case for a Christian. And so, would you pray, church, would you pray this week that that the Lord would be Lord over your emotions? That God would help you retrain your mind so that you would feel the affections according to what is true and not according to what you think is true, but according to what God's Word says. Good catch. And lastly, I'll give you this. How do you retrain those affections? How do you actually feel love when God calls you to feel love? How do you rejoice when you need to rejoice? How do you mourn with those who mourn and you don't feel like it? Well, it's by faith. By faith. You actually do what God calls you to do. You don't just sit back and you just wait for God to give you the desire and then you start moving. That's not how it works most of the time. You actually have to apply yourself and believe in God and have faith that he can do this work in you. But it begins with faith. Just think about it. The things that you enjoy likely are the things that you spend the most time doing, right? I just always keep going back to the example of when I first started playing disc golf a few years ago, I did not like it at all. I just thought it was boring. And now it doesn't take that much for you to convince me to go play with you. Okay, if you want me to go rock climb with you, I will be glad to do it any time. Maybe golf next, right? But what does it take? It takes time. 
It takes actually you taking the time to do those things and enjoy those things. And it's the same with the things of God. How can you know that you do not rejoice in God's word while you have not read and picked up your Bible all week? How can you experience the love that comes through prayer when you neglect to get on your knees? And so when you don't feel like it, you need to retrain your mind and you say, by faith, I will live by the Spirit and I will do the works of the Spirit and I will trust God that this is what he's called me to do and I will trust that he will do the rest in my heart and he is faithful to do it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the encouragement that it is to us. Thank you that it drives us to action. Thank you that it drives us to trust you and to rely on you day by day. That as we consider life and death, we see you above it all. That as we see our trials, Lord, that we would recognize that if you have them, in, if we are in them for a reason, it is because they are necessary for us. So, Father, would you help us to take hold of our life? Would you help us to recognize what is important? Lord, and may the fruits of the Spirit be evident in our church more and more every day. We ask that you would do this in our church body for your glory and the honor of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.